good morning. I'm going to begin this sermon in a way that I, I never have before, probably never will again. Three charismatics walk into a bar. The bartender says, what do you have? The first guy says, a Coke. The bartender's annoyed. He says, a Coke? Don't you know this is a bar? But the first guy says to him, it is written in scripture, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So the bartender turns to the second guy and says, what about you? What do you have? And the second guy says, I'll have a Cabernet. Now this time, it's the first guy who's annoyed, and he says, brother, didn't you hear what I just said? Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So the second guy says, fine, I'll have a Coke too. The bartender turns to the third guy, and he asks, what do you have, a Coke? And the third guy says, I'll take three whiskeys. At this, the first two guys say, brother, didn't you hear what we just said? Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. But the third guy says, I'm trying, brothers. But how do you expect me to be filled with this here Spirit unless I order more than one of them? See, I thought of this joke earlier on in the week, and I told Christy, and she didn't even laugh. She just said, it's probably best not to tell sacrilegious jokes to your people. Now, maybe she's not, she's not here to defend herself. I figured she would be, but um, I don't think I'll tell that joke again. <laughs> now, I, I, I will say, this joke isn't completely gratuitous. Um, it is gratuitous, but I am going to come back to it at the end and hopefully uh, redeem myself a bit, so wait for that. Uh, today, we're going to take one more Sunday to focus on spiritual gifts, and you might have noticed, we, we talked about spiritual gifts uh, really for the last two weeks, but part one and two were two weeks ago. We took an intermission last week for the annual congregational meeting, although we did talk about love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which really governs the use of spiritual gifts. Today we're picking up with a third part, and you, you probably noticed that in those first two parts I really didn't explain what each of the spiritual gifts are individually and how they might be used in the life of the church in part one, when we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the first part of that chapter, I did give the list of those spiritual gifts that Paul mentions in that passage, and I gave a short definition of each one that he mentioned, but there are actually four passages in the New Testament which list very examples of spiritual gifts, and if we put them all together, we end up with a list of almost 20 spiritual gifts. All in all, I think we would really benefit from a, a longer discussion of what these spiritual gifts are, and especially how they can be used in a local church such as, such as this. And I did contemplate doing that today. In fact, I tried it. But the reality is there's just not enough time to do so. And so I've decided to put a brief explanation of each spiritual gift and how it might be used in the church on the sermon handout for today. You'll notice it's quite a bit longer than a normal sermon handout. And that's, that's why. I want to encourage you as we're going along through the sermon to make reference to that sermon handout, especially to those lists, the list of spiritual gifts at the end. And I'd like us to come back to this sometime, probably not on a Sunday morning, but in another context uh, for those of you who really want to go deeper on this topic of spiritual gifts. If you missed the sermon handout for part one and two, it's one handout for part one and two, there, is, uh, there are copies of that on the welcome table. If you missed those sermons, I encourage you to take a look because everything I'll say today is built on that foundation. Where I want to go today is to three places. First is, I want to talk about how to discern your spiritual gifts. We said every believer has spiritual gifts. How do you discern them? Second, I want to discuss a few additional guiding principles 
for the use of spiritual gifts. And third, I want to touch on a few spiritual gift debates, everybody's favorite. Uh, Before we jump in, I'd like us to pray and invite the Spirit to speak. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, Holy God, speak your words. You are the illuminator of God's words and the illuminator of our hearts. May it be so today. Any of my words that are not of you, may they fall to the ground and blow away. But may your word remain. And in us may it bear much fruit. This we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I do believe it's very important to understand the spiritual gifts themselves and how those spiritual gifts might be used. It is another thing altogether, though, to understand what your spiritual gifts are and how you might use the gifts that have been given. So how does a believer discern what spiritual gifts he or she has been given? Before I answer that, I want to say uh, say one thing, probably something I should have said back in part one. A theology of spiritual gifts really should not be separated from an overarching theology of the Holy Spirit. I gave a sermon in May of last year called A Theology of the Holy Spirit, and it turns out that spiritual gifts are just one small thing that the Holy Spirit cares about. It's just one thing that the Holy Spirit is doing. When we talk about the topic of spiritual gifts in isolation, we tend to do some damage. See, the Spirit reveals, the Spirit creates, the Spirit regenerates. He washes, He adopts, He seals, He indwells, He sanctifies, He illumines, He brings fruit, He unifies, and yes, He even gives gifts. If we're going to talk about spiritual gifts, we need to make sure that we're talking about the same Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of the Bible. Because it's possible we're talking about two different kinds of spirit, like the guys in the bar. Are we talking about the Bible, the Bible's spirit? One of those things that the Spirit does is illumination. He illumines. He makes sense of God's word to us and his purposes in our lives. And so herein lies my point. If the Holy Spirit is the one to provide us with spiritual gifts, and he is, we've talked about that. According to the Holy Spirit's nature in ministry then, he is the person who is going to illuminate for us what our spiritual gifts are. The Spirit, not some online diagnostic tool, all right? So, in other words, our spiritual gifts are not supposed to be this mystery or this great secret that's kept from us. Now, there may be reasons why we don't know our spiritual gifts. There might be lots of reasons. For instance, maybe you're a new believer, And you're you're still just trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, let alone what your spiritual gifts might be. That makes sense. For those of us who have been believers for a while now, maybe we've never actually asked God's Spirit to show us. That's quite possible. We've never done so. Or maybe we just haven't been willing to listen. We're not sure we want to know. So I want to encourage you. This is really not a trite encouragement here. Ask the Spirit. Holy Spirit, what are your purposes for me? In the body of Christ. How have you gifted me for the good of your body? Another reason we might not know our spiritual gifts is because deep down we're kind of self-absorbed. We don't actually care about the edification of the church. What, what good would the Spirit telling us our spiritual gifts be if, if we don't even care about the purpose they're for, which is to build up the body? 
Or we might not know our spiritual gifts because we aren't using them. Now, we've talked about a lot of times there just aren't opportunities to use them, and we need to get better as a church in doing that. But we learn where we are gifted by trying. As it is said, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Or maybe we doubt our spiritual gifts because we're simply comparing our measure of gifts to others who have the same gift in greater measure. The problem here is that we know the Spirit gives gifts in different measure. So just because you are not as gifted as someone else who has the same gift doesn't mean you're not gifted in that way too. As I said a lot in part, part two, we're not to be comparing ourselves. That divides the body. So, if we're unsure of what our spiritual gifts are, how might we go about discerning our spiritual gifts? I really believe the place to start, this is not a throwaway, the place to start is ask the giver of the gifts. Ask the giver of the gifts what are his purposes for you. Now, in doing so, you might actually have to pray for desire to bless the church. If you're really selfish like me, you you need to ask for that desire. Or I don't think the Spirit's going to answer you. You might need to ask for courage to experiment with your gifts. To do something that might be uncomfortable or might have the risk of failure. You might need to pray for confidence. Not to compare yourself to others as you obey. But with these kinds of prayers as a starting place, second of all, there, there is a helpful tool to help you discern your spiritual gifts. Some of you have heard of spiritual gifts inventories. I I do think these can be helpful for evaluating ourselves, but I really think that they should be used with the understanding that these inventories more than likely point out those things that we are naturally good at, those things that uh, we're born with as a part of our personality, but those things are not one and the same with our spiritual gifts. In my mind, a, a more useful tool is to invite those who are closest to you in your church community to share with you how they've benefited from you. Our spiritual gifts are the things that God uses to build up the body. And so if you are using your gifts in the body, the fruit is going to be evident. Maybe not to you, but to others. Now, if it's unclear to those people how it is that you've ministered in the life of the church, there's a good chance you're not using your gifts yet. Or that you're not using them for the good of others and just yourself. Hence, no one's benefiting. In which case, you'd want to go back to the starting place. Which is to ask the giver of the gifts. What are his gifts for you? And how you might use them for the building up of the church. So ultimately, the way to go about discerning your spiritual gifts is to seek the Spirit. Seek the Spirit and also seek the input of those who also have that same Spirit. Okay, where I'd like to go now is to talk about some additional principles we need to be guided by as we are seeking to discern as well as seeking to use our gifts. And these principles are going to be building upon the eight questions and answers that we had in parts one and two. There are five principles, and they each have two words. The first is unity and diversity. Now, these have been words that we've been using a lot in the last couple of weeks, Um, But I want to state something about these words in a way that I haven't stated it yet. And that is that the Spirit of God cares both about the unity and the diversity of Christ's body. It's both. 
Now, there are several ways in which we know that to be true. When it comes to spiritual gifts, here's a principle that we need to understand. God's gift of the Holy Spirit to us is the foundation for the church's unity. We all share the same exact spirit. The Holy Spirit's gifts to us, as in spiritual gifts, are the foundation for the church's diverse ministry. We all have the same spirit and thus we are to be unified, but we do not all have the same ministry because we all need to be built up in different ways. Both unity and diversity are from God's spirit and both are supposed to go together. A second principle relates to another two words, and these words are receiving and giving. We know that the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to us and we are to receive them. And upon receiving them, We are to then give the benefit of those gifts, to use those gifts for the sake of others. Here's one thing we haven't acknowledged yet, and sometimes um, isn't acknowledged at all. As much as each of us needs a willingness to use our spiritual gifts, each of us also needs a willingness to receive what other believers can give us through their gifts. Scripture tells us we need one another. And yet, culturally, we don't want to need one another. To need one another is weak. Yet, belonging to to Christ, it's going to require us to have a countercultural humility. To believe that others are called by God to use their gifts, and we are called to receive the benefits. Just as we are called to use our gifts, and they are called to receive the benefits. To be a part of Christ's body, it requires the humility to be ministered to both for your sake and for the sake of the person ministering, whatever ministry that is. A third principle has to do with two other words, spontaneity and order. There is a perspective in the church that says that for something to be spirit-led, it has to be spontaneous, it has to be unplanned, it has to be unrestricted. Now, it is important for the people of God to have opportunities to use their gifts in spontaneous and extemporaneous ways, but... Spontaneity is not the marker of spiritual authenticity. On the contrary, order is from God as well. In the last half of 1 Corinthians 14, the passage that we read this morning, and the passage that comes after that passage, rather, Paul actually submits spontaneity to order. He says in verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Meaning, if the use of spiritual gifts is chaotic for the church, It's not honoring to the Spirit because the church is divided. And thus he says in the very last verse of chapter 14, the thing that kind of caps the whole chapter off, all things should be done decently and in order. Now, it's true that there are some churches that fear anything that's spontaneous, anything that's unplanned, anything that's unrestricted. And in that case, they should understand that spontaneity is also from the Spirit, just like order is. A fourth principle has to do with spirit and mind. Spirit and mind. There is another idea in the church um, that says that for something to be spirit-led, it has to not make sense to our reason. It is thought that those things that are truly spiritual are those things that are emotion, emotional, the things that are experiential. And this idea, it often comes in reaction to churches that place all of the emphasis on the mind, as if... That's all that we are as humans, is one big mind. 
But both of those extremes are wrong. We are a mind, but we're also a heart. We're spirit and body. We are rational and we are emotional. And so when it comes to spiritual gifts, we can't just use our minds. But spiritual gifts will never be anti-mind or irrational. And this is precisely what Paul gets at, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 14 to 20, as he talks about the need to engage our minds in the use of spiritual gifts. He says in verse 15, I will pray with my spirit, yes, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, yes, but I will sing with my mind also. He also says in verse 20, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The mind has to be there. A fifth and final principle has to do with the words effectiveness and excusefulness. And excusefulness I just made up, all right? We should all seek to, to use the gifts that God has given us in our service. That's what God desires. He wants us to use our gifts, and it's most efficient and effective if we do just that. But there is an excuse that exists in the church when someone is asked to do something, and they respond, well, that's not my spiritual gift. It may be true that the thing a person is being asked to do is not their spiritual gift, But the problem is, one's spiritual gifts are not to be the excuse not to edify the body where it has needs. Additionally, what we find is that this kind of excuse is most often used when it comes to the uh, areas of gifting that correspond to the things that every believer is supposed to exhibit. For example, faith and mercy and generosity and service and evangelism. These spiritual gifts, uh, no one is off the hook from these kinds of activities. It's true that there are believers who are uniquely gifted in these ways, but we're all called to be faithful. We're all called to be merciful. We're all called to be generous and servant-hearted. We're all called to evangelize. So if you're told to preach the gospel to your neighbors, don't say that's not my spiritual gift. If you're called to clean a toilet here at Living Faith, don't say that's not my spiritual gift. Okay, the final thing I'd like to do this morning is to touch very briefly on two particular debates regarding spiritual gifts. It's probably clear that this topic is a complicated one. And as a result, unfortunately, it's caused a great bit of debate in the church and a pretty good amount of confusion among everyday Christians. My goal in part one and two was to give a core theology, a core theology of spiritual gifts that hopefully every Christian could agree on. But there are two particular areas of controversy when it comes to spiritual gifts, and I want to comment on those here. And I'm aware that in this congregation, we may have people who fall on either side of these issues. And so I'm going to speak as graciously as I can this morning. This is a secondary issue, not primary. You're not going to get kicked out of living faith, and certainly not the universal church on these matters. I hope you'll also have the same grace for me and for those around you. The first debate has to do with whether or not Four or five of the spiritual gifts are still operating today, are still for the church to use. And there are two main views in this debate. There's the cessationist view and there is the continuationist view. Cessationism says that any spiritual gifts that we cannot explain in natural terms, they've ceased. They're not for use anymore. These gifts are probably obvious to you. They're tongues, interpretation of tongues, healing, miracles, and prophecy. 
Now, there are some substantive reasons for this view. For example, in the story of redemption, there are certainly special times when God's Spirit was moving in unique ways. There are times when God's supernatural signs and wonders are more prominent, much more prominent than other times. For example, the Exodus. For example, the time of the prophets, especially Elijah and Elisha. The other, the other is a time, the time of Jesus and the time of the apostles after him. Another reason has to do with the story of the church. When you look at church history, it, it seems that the prevalence of spiritual gifts, especially some of them, seems to decline after the first few centuries. Those are the substantive reasons, but there are also some insubstantive reasons. Cessationism has really only been popular in recent centuries, and it coincided with two main things. One is the Reformation. The Reformers were often critical, as they should be, of the fake miracles and the fascination of the supernatural that was in the medieval Roman Catholic Church. And these kinds of abuses are still evident today, especially since the 1960s and 1970s in the West. Another thing coinciding with cessationism is the Enlightenment. We have inherited a culture that is increasingly materialist. It only believes in the things that can be touched and sensed. And it's also anti-supernatural as a result. And this encourages us to dismiss anything that we can't explain naturally. Perhaps one final insubstantial reason for cessationism is based on personal experience. Some people who have not had the experience of certain spiritual gifts may discount the experience of others who have, which brings us to the fact that ultimately there's, a very, there's very weak biblical evidence for a cessationist perspective. Perhaps the most common passage cited in favor of cessationism is the passage we looked at last week, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 to 10, in which Paul says, in the context of the spiritual uh, uh, gifts conversation in Corinth, he says, when the perfect comes, spiritual gifts will pass away. Now, the problem with interpreting this as a cessationist argument is that Paul's not talking about certain spiritual gifts. He's talking about all spiritual gifts. And the perfect that's coming is not some perfect moment in church history, because I don't think there are any of those, it's the perfect moment when Christ returns and all is made new and spiritual gifts are not necessary anymore. On the other side of this debate is is continuationism, And, and this is the view that all the spiritual gifts continue to this day and are for use in the church. I believe that the simple reading of scripture leads us to expect that all spiritual gifts need to be used in the life of the church for as long as the church needs to be edified. In other words, until Christ comes. And throughout the history of the early and medieval church, the vast majority of church fathers accepted this position. They couldn't think of any other way. Continuationists acknowledge that there has been an ebb and flow. Of course there's an ebb and flow of the movement of God's Holy Spirit throughout church history. And there may be times when some spiritual gifts are less visible than others. And there are all sorts of reasons for that including abuses. But the idea that certain spiritual gifts have ceased altogether as a result is a much bigger jump to make. Additionally, it's obvious that there were real abuses in the medieval church when it comes to the pseudo-supernatural, and there are lots of abuses today that I want no part of in churches that claim to have the Spirit in great measure in ways not experienced by other Christians. 
The abuse of something does not make it false or wrong. It's just that the abuse needs to be corrected. It needs to be righted. And finally, to this idea that if we don't experience it, or if it doesn't make sense to our minds, the truth is that Scripture tells us what the truth is, not our experience. As Christians, we, we, we don't submit to our experience as our final authority. Our experience is in submission to the authority of Scripture. And so if Scripture tells us something is true in our experience, um, we have a hard time recognizing that. Are we to just dismiss Scripture? If we're being faithful to the Word, we're not. We're not going to do that. All in all, I think we are wise to heed the words of teachers such as Anglican theologian and Pastor John Stott, who writes, We must be very careful neither to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit by attributing His work to the devil, nor to quench the Holy Spirit by resolving to contain him within our own safe and traditional patterns. On the other hand, we should also not manifest a sinful discontent with his more normal and usual operations in us. Abnormal experiences are not necessary to Christian maturity. A second debate on spiritual gifts has to do again with these four or five spiritual gifts, But it has to do with what do we refer to them as? What do we call them? These gifts are are often called the charismatic gifts or the supernatural gifts. And what is meant by these terms, charismatic or supernatural, is to point out that, that tongues and interpretation of tongues and prophecy and healing and miracles, they're all beyond the naturally occurring human abilities. And therefore, they have a very clear origin in the Spirit of God. And those who have these gifts, or at least open to getting them, are said to be charismatics. Now, when I told the joke back at the very beginning of this sermon, you probably knew what kind of Christian I was talking about by just saying three charismatics walked into a bar. There's a problem with that, though. There's a problem that certain Christians are characterized as charismatics. There are two main Greek words that Paul uses to talk about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians. One is pneumatikos. It means the things of the Spirit. Pneuma is that Greek word for spirit. The other word is charisma or charismata, which means the gifts of grace. The gifts of grace. And it's from that second word that, of course, we get the term charismatic. Now, of the spiritual gifts mentioned in Scripture, which of them do you think qualify as gifts of grace? All of them. All of the spiritual gifts are charismatic gifts. All of them come from the Spirit. All of them are supernatural. And as we know by now, all are essential. The only biblical way of separating some spiritual gifts from others is not by what appears natural versus what seems to be supernatural. It's in terms of how much the body is built up. As we talked about in part two. What's interesting is that in Paul's hierarchy of spiritual gifts in terms of edification, which he discusses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and again in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, prophecy is at the top and tongues is at the bottom. It's as if Paul is saying to us, don't get caught up with just those gifts that are outwardly spectacular. Because guess what? One's at the top and one's at the bottom. And there is a whole lot in between. A whole lot. When we focus on some spiritual gifts to the detriment of others, we're impoverishing ourselves. We're poorer, not richer. 
Now, when we use this word charismatic to refute just a few spiritual gifts, we are hijacking a term that's supposed to be used for all of us. To be fair, that term has been hijacked in part because some Christians have been completely opposed to the use of these four or five spiritual gifts. However, what happens when the designation charismatic is applied to only a few spiritual gifts, then those Christians who have those gifts are considered spirit-filled. And those who don't have that gift or those gifts are not considered spirit-filled. And there is zero biblical basis for that. In fact, to the contrary, there is very clear biblical teaching to condemn that sort of thing, namely the epistle of 1 Corinthians. So, when it comes to the word charismatic, if by that we mean those who have the so-called five spirit-filled gifts, we should reject that kind of thing. But if by charismatic we mean those people who are empowered through all the charismata, then we should accept that and rejoice in that kind of thing. In fact, as Anglicans, we describe ourselves as those committed to word and sacrament and spirit. These are the three great streams of Christian spirituality, otherwise known as the evangelical, the Catholic, and the charismatic. My point in all of this, and in fact in this entire sermon series, is to say this. We should all be charismatic. We should all be charismatic in that we are looking for the Holy Spirit to break in among us and to build up his body. That's the point. And while spiritual gifts are just one small part of what the Holy Spirit cares about and is doing in our midst, Paul says they're critical to the life of the body, and therefore, they're critical to the life of the world. And so as a common thread between parts one and two, I want to read a verse I've referenced in each sermon so far, and it happens to be the last verse in our passage for today, 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So with yourselves, brothers and sisters, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, as you should be, strive to excel in building up the church. So by God's grace and by the Spirit's gifts, may everything we do be for that purpose and may nothing against it. Amen?